Well, we continue our study in John chapter 12, and as I shared last week, I didn't really get very far, did I? Um, I really only got through halfway through last week's message, and so I'm going to try to uh, get into this, finish it this week. Uh, I thought we would get to talking about Judas this week, but we're not going to be there until uh, next Lord's Day, and so we want to continue considering um, what worship is uh, about. What are some of the characteristics of worship that we can learn from the action of not only Mary, but as we talked last week of Martha and Simon the leper, and who all opened up their resources. Well, that resources was your home uh, for Simon the leper to have this meal for Jesus. Of Martha willingly and joyfully serving the meal. Very different than last time we saw her. And then we come to Mary, though. And Mary, of course, is the is the pinnacle example because her service is unique. It is unique not to just her, but to the situation. And we try to distinguish last week between two kinds of worship. That there is our everyday worship, and then there are those occasions of lavish worship or uh, uh, just extravagant worship that aren't necessarily our, an everyday event in our uh, worship experience, but that they need to be there on occasions. And sometimes we just share in them. It is not our extravagant worship, but somebody else's that we get to participate with and in. And we're going to talk about some examples of that. So I'm not contrasting these two. I want to learn from the lavish worship what we should be doing in normal worship. And so let's talk about these a little bit. And so in lavish worship last week, we saw... Um, so in lavish worship, we have Mary bringing a, a very costly gift. A year's wages worth of giving on that day. And that doesn't happen every day. That's not something Mary's going to do every Lord's Day. Uh, but on this occasion... Given the circumstances in their life, given the condition of her heart, um, it was time for this lavish worship. What she did not know, we're going to talk about a little bit today, is that that lavish worship was intended by God not only to fulfill her desire to worship, but also to prophesy and to speak of and to address the fact of our Lord and Savior's upcoming uh, death and specifically his burial. And Christ is going to stipulate that here in a little bit. And so we have her expression of lavish worship uh, given by great cost, by this um, giving all. Uh, some people talk about the, um, the ointment, the, the fragrant oil that she was using as being a life's savings, perhaps. And again, we compared that last week. How many of you have a year's salary in the bank saved up? Uh, this is just a retirement account. In fact, some people even contend that this was her dowry, that she was really laying out what would have been a substantial part, if not entirely, her dowry, and saying that, well, whether I have anything to offer to a man uh, for marriage or not, I am giving it all. I'm giving it up. I'm surrendering this to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm recognizing not only his ownership, that's our regular giving, but even my complete dependence upon Jesus Christ, lavish worship, which needs to happen in our environments, um, not necessarily with each one of us every time, but with certain uh, times, and we're going to talk about those here in a little bit. Also, we see that there should be, in our normal worship, like lavish worship has extraordinary cost involved, 
normal worship should be costly. We talked about that last week, that the Bible has in the Old Testament that you never came before the Lord without a sacrifice. You just never did that. You, you always brought a sacrifice, whether it's a grain offering, uh, Thanksgiving, whether it's a, a drink offering, whether it's a, a, a burnt offering. Uh, you always came to the temple. You always came to worship with an offering in hand. And I think it is a valuable thing. And when we get to Corinthians and Paul talks to the Corinthians about part of their worship, it says that when you gather on the first day of the week, you should set aside something each week so that when I come, um, I can just gather it and you can send some people and we can deliver that gift to where its intended purposes there in Jerusalem. And so even in the early church, there's the identification that when we gather together, we are going to come with some cost. And I... In, for my wife and I, we have purposed that even though our, our paychecks are monthly or biweekly, that we would figure that out and so we could come every week. And we do not come to the house of the Lord without a cost. That I'm going to uh, offer up to God something as part of my worship. Is it lavish? Is it everything? Um, no, I, I, I will not say that. But it is costly. And so... Uh, we have that example, a weekly giving in 1 Corinthians 16, that we should bring something before the Lord. I do not want to come before God empty-handed. And then we have an example of lavishness. Now, lavishness, we think, is a great amount. And in this case, for Mary, it is. But I want to share with you one other example of lavish worship that I didn't get to last week. And that was the lavish worship of a person who gave one mite. That was lavish worship for her. The widow that Jesus pointed to and said, this woman who has given all that she has, she has entered the tavern, the, the temple on that occasion. And while rich people have given great quantity, um, she has given uh, the highest percentage. She has given all that she has. So lavish worship is, is on a scale, isn't it? It is... Uh, for some, it, it might be very little, but it is all they have. And for the widow, she came in with lavish worship to give all that she had. There was a cost involved, and she willingly paid that. And God, of all the people he recognized on the temple, Jesus Christ recognized her giving. It was lavish. Of all the giving going on there um, at that meal, um, Martha served and and and. Uh, Simon the leper provided his housing, uh, but it was the lavish worship. Jesus says, don't you criticize that. And this is what's going to be remembered. Everywhere the gospel goes, this account is going to be given. And so God recognizes it, again, um, when it is done in, a, in the fashion that we find represented here by Mary. We talked last week about the necessity also, the other characteristic of worship being with humility. And that there should be a bringing forth in, a, in a, hum, a humble heart of worship. That we do not come to hear ourselves sing. We do not come to applaud our performances. We do not come to be, be pat on the back for great preaching or teaching. Uh, we do not come to receive any of that. In fact, to, the, to many degrees, that destroys it. Because our purpose of worship, one of the characteristics of true biblical worship is that we do so with humility. That we are not self-seeking at all, but that we are rather 
desiring to um, esteem others, ultimately Jesus Christ. And we want to glorify God and not ourselves. And so um, we put all these things aside and everything that we can boast about, Paul says in Philippians, all these things I can boast about, I count them as nothing that I may gain Christ. I want Christ to have the, be the focal point and the attention of all of my worship. And if, and if something in my worship is drawing attention to me, it's bad worship. It's wrong worship. And again, if we go back to the example of Jesus in the temple with the widow's might, um, what the others were doing were coming up with, a, with, with probably what wasn't a really large sum of money, but it looked like it because they would take all the smallest coins and it's kind of like us taking a, a whole bag of pennies. Uh, well, I'm going to give all this money and it looks very impressive. And they had a collection canister. Uh, would be it, it had like a funnel around it and it was made out of metal. And so they would drop that in there, ding, 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 and it would just make noise all the way down. Ding, 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 and the longer it went, boy, boy, they're just giving a lot, a lot. Well, they're giving pennies. But why did they do that? Why, why drop it around, gling, 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 making all this noise? Because they wanted people to see their giving so they could receive the glory for it. And when you are receiving the glory in the midst of worship, whether it's someone saying, oh, what a wonderful sermon, what a wonderful voice, what a wonderful this, what a, what, what a generous giving. When you're receiving the glory for that, you are robbing God of the glory that was intended for him. And God says, if you receive the glory, then you haven't worshipped me. It is no longer worship when you are receiving the glory instead of God. And so we find in our normal worship, we need to have humility. In lavish worship, that goes even many steps further. And we talked about Mary disgracing herself by putting down her hair as a, as a, a, a a, a prostitute would as a woman I would and, and washing his hair that the hair was her glory and they often kept it up and, and covered and she just as she lavishly gave this costly gift she disgraced herself in public putting down her hair now the last time we had a woman washing Jesus hair in that instance with her tears and her hair was a woman that was a sinner and that's how everyone knew she was a sinner. Her hair was down. And so the Pharisees glory says, don't you know who's doing that to you? Don't you know that that's a woman of a bad reputation? And Jesus says, her sins are forgiven and yours are, are not. Because she came acknowledging her sin. So that's what it, what it speaks of. And so when Mary, a woman of virtue, puts down her hair uh, and accepts that disgrace of the world's view, this is complete humiliation. And Paul speaks of this. He says, I, I'll humble, I, I, put me in prison, uh, beat me, do, I, I'll accept any humiliation that I may serve Christ. The extent of the humiliation I'm willing to receive knows no boundaries. This is lavish worship. Now, was Paul beaten or humiliated on a daily basis? No. But on the occasions that it was required, he willingly participated in it. And on this occasion, we have this. We talked about the example last week of David and his humiliation. And again, what is it that, that moves us to this kind of willingness to humiliate ourselves, to, to humble ourselves to the point of, 
of being uh, disgraced. Most often, is be, as we shared last week, this is still review, <laughs> as we shared last week, most often it is because we are responding to repentance. This is the, the outflow of repentance. I have recognized that I've sinned. I've recognized that I've erred against God. I've recognized that I've failed in my faith. And this requires a, a new level of worship that I come with repentant heart. And in that repentant heart, I come in and um, I want to humiliate myself before God because I did it wrong before. I did it my way. And that was wrong. Now I want to do it completely and, and, and overwhelmingly God's way. When Mary, we met Mary last time and she broke Jesus' heart and now she wants to mend that. She's repentant of that. And now when she didn't trust in them, she wants to show him that she completely trusts in him now. So I'm going to give the costliest gift I have, perhaps my future dowry. My future at least. And I'm going to give to you my complete humiliation. I have no pride. I am completely abased before God. This is that whole falling on your face before the Lord of, of, of being in mourning over your sin, over the disregard you have had for the glory and the honor and the holiness of God, your distrust of him. And Mary here wants to communicate something to us. That she has come into a new level of faith having been rebuked by Jesus very gently and having seen the power of God in her family. This is not just about Thanksgiving, which is our next characteristic. This is about, I have moved from not trusting you to trusting you. Not only with my possessions, but with my very reputation. I'm laying on the line here for Jesus Christ. I'm a follower of his, and that will define me from this point forward. That's what lavish worship communicates. Normal worship still has that in it. But there are times that we must fall on our faces before God. There are times that we must accept that complete humiliation that we might serve him. And we have many examples through church history of men and women who willingly did that. That's one of the value of studying church history to see the extent that they were willing to be humiliated for the cause of Christ. And we have struggles keeping serving without getting burned out because we're not being appreciated by people. Well, if that's the motivation you need to keep serving God, you do not understand the humility aspect, like that characteristic of true worship. So we have two others. That's review. And we have two other characteristics of worship that we want to look at from Mary. The other one is that she is coming to God with thanksgiving. And this, this is a declaration of thanksgiving. Worship fundamentally is thanksgiving. We find this extensively in the Psalms um, and other places where come before his presence with thanksgiving. That the giving of thanks and, and the, the reflection upon the goodness and provision of God should inundate all of our worship. Now I want to take a little time to define worship a little better. Because something happened really bad in the 70s. And that is that song leaders took over the term worship as their own. And worship became only our singing. And that was a 
horrible thing to happen in the church. That this very precious term of worship became isolated to your singing and to this, not, not the preaching part of the service and not other aspects of your life. Horrible thing that happened in the 70s. And we're reaping some of the problems that that created. Because now we have segmented our life, just like we've segmented our services. Well, this is worship. This is instruction. This is application. Oh, no. In fact, uh, the very idea of worship and uh, some of the things we associate with modern worship, um, uh, one of the things that we'll see in a lot of communities and uh, is really, we saw it at the JPC conference as well, is the lifting up of hands for worship. When do we do that? Do we ever do that during the sermon? We do it during the singing. Why do we do it only during the singing? Well, that's worship. And I'm worshiping. Well, if you go to the the uh, Old Testament and see when they lift up holy hands, and that, that is a, a, a statement given by Paul to Timothy that we should lift up holy hands, um, but not in the context of singing. In fact, for the Jews, the idea of raising up holy hands and singing is foreign to them. Normally you'd be doing something else with your hands. You'd be clapping or something. So what does it mean to lift up your holy hands? They always did that while they're praying. And in fact, if you go go with me to First, first uh, Timothy. First Timothy, if you'll turn there. Chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2. Let's just look at the context of that. Um, I desire, therefore... Verse 8, 1 Timothy chapter 2, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And we could go into Psalm 24, Psalm 26, Psalm 28, and again and again, it is associated with your supplications before the Lord that you lift up holy hands. But the emphasis here is on the holy part. We're all worried about lifting up hands. Well, and, and we're evaluating that in worship. And, of course, the Jeremy Conference was on worship. And so we had some of that, lifting up holy hands, um, during singing. But yet during praying, what do we do? Fold your hands, right? Isn't that interesting? Uh, why do we fold our hands during prayer? Why do we teach our children to do that? The only reason we teach children to do that is so that they're not distracted touching everything while they're praying, while you're praying. Because they're not praying. They're just distracted. They're just looking at other things. Um, but for a Jewish person, if you're going to pray, you're going to lift up your hands in supplication. This is how you pray. It's not how you sing. Usually you're clapping while you're singing or playing an instrument. So when we look at this, this is worship. Worship is much more than just your singing. It involves every aspect of your life. And it's interesting that here, there's no singing in John chapter 12. Do you see any songs sung? And yet we have lavish worship going on. So what are we seeing? Here we go. You ready? We're at a meal. Can you worship God at a meal? You should be. That's what this whole meal purpose was, was to worship God together, to worship Jesus Christ, to honor him, as well as Lazarus, who was sitting there. And so we worship God as expressions of thanksgiving throughout our life in very many different avenues. Martha was serving the meal. That was her worship, was serving the meal. That was an act of worship. 
She was lifting up her hand to serve. And that is another use of this terminology in the Bible. The other use of the terminology lift up hands is this. You ready? You lift up your hand against someone or you lift up a hand for someone. What does that mean? You're doing this? Are you doing a stop sign to people? Is that where you're lifting up your hand against them? No, it means you're taking action for or against those persons. So when the Bible says you lift up your hand against them, it means you're going to take action against them, usually military action, uh, but some kind of action against them. Sometimes it's in a judgment format. You're going to lift up your hand. So you're going to lift up your hand also means about taking action. And that's about the application of truth. I'm going to not just talk about it. I'm going to lift my hands up and do it. And so worship entails every part of our life that should be inundated with thanksgiving. I'm going to take up my hands to do what is thankful. I'm going to apply myself. And so Martha is doing that. And now we have uh, Mary coming and doing it lavishly. She is doing something that was probably her normal assignment. The normal assignment when you are an honored guest coming into a Jewish home for a, a special meal is that they will wash your feet, right, and provide you some washing for your hands. They will then anoint your head with oil. Remember when Jesus went into the home and the woman cried to wash his feet with her hair, tears and hair, and then anointed him with oil? And his statement was, I came in and he did none of these things for me, which, which meant that you didn't honor me. You gave no honor to me. And so the if you have an honored guest, someone in the home is given the assignment of making sure the honored guest, which is both Lazarus and Jesus, come in and make sure that they have their feet properly washed and cared for, that they have their everything, and that they are anointed with oil. So this is not an abnormal act. This is a normal thing that, that was required of a good host. I want you to understand that. We're taking normal activity. How do we turn normal activity into lavish worship? Or even normal worship? Well, we, we center Jesus Christ in it. And now she's taking a normal activity, and, and by adding extreme cost and extreme humiliation, she is speaking of her thanksgiving to God. Does she have something to be thankful for? <laughs> yes, her brother is right next to Jesus. He was dead four days. It's kind of interesting to think about this because she didn't spend the perfumed ointment on her brother when he died. But she did spend it on Jesus in a normal activity. Isn't that interesting? Her brother was dead earlier. And she didn't spend that ointment on him. They certainly ointed him with the, oil, the oils that they used. And stuff, and certainly they would have done that and put him in the grave, just like they were going to want to do to Jesus. They couldn't. There wasn't time enough to do it between the crucifixion and the burial. There wasn't time. Remember, it was almost sunset. The Sabbath had already be, almost become. And the reason the women were going there early in the morning the next day was to anoint him because he hadn't been properly perfumed for burial. Mary didn't use this very expensive stuff on her own brother. Isn't that interesting? But she did take it to lavishly worship God at this meal. To do what a, a normal activity and to take it to the nth degree as an act of worship and honor. 
Lord, I worship you. And so do not get worship limited down to just something you do in a church service when the piano's playing. Worship is what you do in normal activity once you've surrendered that activity to God. So is preparing a meal worship? It can be. Your attitude, your disposition toward it is the determining factor, not the activity itself. Is setting the table worship? When a child has said set the table while mom is preparing the dinner? Yes, it can be. Not if they're doing it while grumbling, complaining, not if they do it uh, with that kind of look. No, it's not worship then anymore, is it? It's not worship to God if they want to be paid to do it. Because then they want to have the recognition for it. It's only worship when we say, I'm going to give this an expression of thanksgiving to God for this wonderful meal. We are so careful to make sure we pray before we eat, but are we careful to make sure that the preparation of the food, the consumption of the food, both before, during, and the cleaning up of it is all covered with thanksgiving? Not just lip service, saying you're thankful before you eat, but truly being thankful in the whole process. You see, what Mary did was she took a normal activity and sanctified it. She set it apart as an act of worship. And this is what it means to say, children, we're going to be obeying our parents in the Lord. For this is right. What does it mean in the Lord? You're going to be obeying them as an act of worship to God. That this matters before God, how I live. And so Mary takes this role and teaches us what Thanksgiving looks like on a lavish level. But not only is she thankful for the life of her brother, she's also thankful for the forgiveness of the mercy of God. Because remember, that which brings this kind of humiliation is generally in the Bible always reserved for those who have been brought to deep repentance. And let's go to um, David's example of that in 2 Samuel. Let's go to 2 Samuel. You can turn your Bibles there. Chapter 6. I want to read a couple things to you. Here are the words of David that show this. The thanksgiving of receiving the mercy of God. That when we receive mercy of God and we know it. Because we've been caught, we're guilty, and we deserve judgment. And then we have repentance, which is not just being sorry for what you've done, but saying, I'm going to take corrective action. I'm going in the other direction now. I am repenting. I was going my way, now I'm going to do it God's way. I'm doing a 180 here. So chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, the first half of this chapter, talks about David doing it his way, the wrong way, and the consequences of that. And it was horrific. And yes, a man died, um, but also it says that uh, in verse 8, look at verse, <laughs> let's look at verse 7, 8, and 9, okay? So the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, he's the one that touched it, and God struck him there for his error, his sin, and he died there by the ark. And David, look, became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. So he became angry, but then he reflected upon it. Look at the next verse. So David was afraid of the Lord that day. 
And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? I am not worthy of it. And he puts the ark in the closest place he had, right there. He set aside the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Uh, the ark of the Lord remained there uh, for three months. And the Lord blessed that household for those three months. So for three months, David is angry and afraid. Took him three months to get over this. This is an enduring problem. He finally says, I need to get this right. And that's when he did it properly. Look at the lavishness of overcoming your error. When, if there's any time for lavish worship, it is when you are prepared or have received the great mercy of God. Here he is. Verse, uh, in the middle of verse 12, it says, So David went and brought up the ark of God from the household of Ed to save David with gladness. You see that? Verse 12 at the end. He brought it forth with gladness. He changed his heart from anger and fear to gladness. Look at verse 13. Here's again the costliness, lavish worship costliness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Every six steps, you stop and have a sacrifice. Can you imagine how long that would take to go very far? And it doesn't say an ox and a sheep. It is oxen, plural. And sheep, plural. It's hard to tell here in our English, but in the Hebrew, it's plural. Then David, it says in verse 14, so you have this lavish worship. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came in the city of David, Michael saw daughter looking through a window, saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. He was doing a pretty normal activity. We just got to get the ark from there to here. But I did it wrong last time. And it created all of these things in my life. Anger. Fear. Now with gladness. And I'm going to do it God's way. I want to show repentance. And he humbles himself completely. To the point that he says you have been. Uh, uh, what Michael's statement is. That you have uncovered yourself. Shamelessly. You are a base fellow. You have. You have no shame. He is so thankful for this opportunity. Look at his words. Verse 21. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of Israel, over of the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play before the Lord. Word music isn't there in the Hebrew. I will play before the Lord. I will become like a little child. I will become exuberant. I will worship him in, in the, the most playful way there was. Remember, he did it with gladness. Kind of makes you wonder about singing like this. It's really hard to worship God like this. Can you see me? They can see me huge on, this, on the wall right now. <laughs> it's hard to worship God that way. In fact, you cannot worship God that way. He says, I'm going to play before the Lord. And then look at verse 22. And I will be even more undignified than this. And will be humble in my own sight. That's for the maidservants of whom you've spoken. By them I will be held in honor. And so here's my wife who should be rejoicing with me. It's what it means to rejoice with those who rejoice. Sorrowful with those who are sorrowful. 
He was sorrowful for three months. He was angry. He was afraid. Now with gladness, he humbles himself before the Lord, does it God's way. And with great thanksgiving, he's going to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, the city of David. And the mercy of God is upon him. This was what drives thanksgiving, is understanding the goodness of God, the mercy of God, and how much we are dependent upon it for everything in life. And that should make us glad. The alternative is that you're going to be angry at God, you're going to be afraid. Not an awe, fear of the Lord that we talk about on Sunday nights, in our, that we want to uh, have the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom, but a, a afraidness. That God doesn't intend. So our worship should be filled with thanksgiving. And it should be the driving force of it. And that's the only way we can do it with gladness. How does Mary do this act with a glad heart? Willing to take the criticism of even Jesus' other disciples. Because she knows the great transformation he's making in her life. That she didn't trust in him. She was rebuked by Christ's resurrect by the resurrection of her brother. She's thankful for his, her brother's life, but she's also thankful for the mercy of God toward her, that she can still make it right. And maybe for three months you've been angry. Maybe for three years you've been angry, and it's interrupted your worship. You've been afraid, and it's interrupted your worship, and it is. Time maybe to just break free of that and come and kneel before God, humble yourself and say, I'm tired of doing it my way. I'm willing to do it God's way. I'm willing to humiliate myself and even go against everything I've stood for. I mean, he's going, David goes all the way back to his relationship between himself and Saul. He's, I'm not going to lift up my heart. God brought me into this position. I want to do it responsibly. And so I'm going to, I'm going to dismiss myself. And this is what Paul does. He does it to the Corinthians. He does it to the Thessalonians. He does. He says every to the flip to um, the Philippians there as well. Uh, everything I could exalt in, I, I abase. They're worthless. They're cow dung to me. They're garbage. I have nothing to glory in except for Jesus Christ. This is worship that is thankful, humble, and costly. Well, there's one more. There's one more. If you go back to John chapter 12. One more aspect here that we want to touch on that needs to be in our worship. And I think we underestimate its power. In John chapter 12, if you want to look at verse uh, 30, uh, verse 3, it says, Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of of the oil. There's another characteristic of true worship. True, godly, biblical worship always influences others. Always. It always influences others. The purpose of the gifts of the Holy Spirit to effectuate your worship are only active and honoring to God when they are put not to your own interests, but the interests of your brethren. They are to be done in the context of the body. And thus, my finger isn't just serving my finger. My finger is serving my whole body. And that's when, it, that's when it's the best 
use of a finger. It went serving the whole body. Correct? The best use of your spiritual gifts, the only acceptable use before God that brings glory to him and his true worship is when we are involved in worship as an act of service to others. I'm here to influence you. I'm here to impact you. I am here not to get, but we have people going from church to church to church, and here's what they're doing. Well, are you going to meet my needs? They come and visit a church. Are you meeting my needs? I don't think I like that. Uh, I'm not sure my children are going to be properly served there. Uh, I don't think, are you meeting my needs? And we go shopping for churches. And we have a shopping list that has nothing to do with worship because it requires nothing of us. In fact, what we really want is to kind of uh, just, just be wheelchaired in, be intravenously fed all the things we need um, without any energy. We don't even want to chew. And then we want to be wheelchaired out, and, and, and that's our spiritual activity of the day. We're not engaged at all. I've yet to meet the person that comes to church and looks around and says, well, how can I help? I'm looking for a church I can really minister in and serve in. How can I help around here? I don't find that attitude. I look around and say, well, I have this checklist. Are you this? 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 Oh, you don't make that one. You don't have a choir. Sorry. We don't have a choir? To serve your purposes. Were you, are you a choir singer? No, I just really like a choir. So you don't want to sing in a choir. You just want to hear a choir every day, every Lord's Day. Uh, yeah, it's not worship to me without a choir. I just kind of say, well, turn around and look at everyone sitting around you. They are a choir. You're the choir. Right there. They're the acapella choir this week. We're acapella here, too, because the piano's on the other side of the cabin. So we sang acapella with you. And we're going to sing it the rest of the service that way. Oh, that we would stop shopping. Ultimately, it's about the impact on others. And our normal worship should be the exercise of our spiritual gifts is to serve others. What does Jesus describe as true worship? If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, learn to be the servant of all. And when you combine this with another one, it, and by the way, I didn't always believe that. Well, I gave lip service to it, but I didn't always live it. Okay. Um, some people ask me, why am I the nursery teacher? It's usually visitors. Why are you the nursery Sunday school teacher? Um, I wasn't always the nursery Sunday school teacher. In this church, for a lot of the time, I have been the nursery Sunday school teacher. Um, but I'm going to tell you what I was originally in ministry. I kind of resented it. I resented babies in a church. I resented having to have adults leave my sermons to go to watch children. And, just, and then I resented if I could hear them. I did. That's who I was, even when I had little children. You know, my wife would get, I don't want to hear those kids. You take, I don't want to be interrupted with, I don't, I don't want to be a distraction. That's all they were to me, a distraction. And it was in the course of preaching and the, this idea of you have to be the servant of the least. Well, who's the least? In my opinion, the least in the church were the babies. And then you combine that where Jesus says, let the children, little children come to me. And I was really more like the disciples than I was like Jesus 
saying, just just stay back here, stay out of the way, this is an adult thing. And I was convicted. And so, what do you do when you're convicted of something? You either resist it or you repent. That's what you do. That's your choices. You either resist or repent. And I repented. And so, as an act of repentance going the other way, instead of, of resenting them, I embraced them. I said, these are my kids. This is going to be a ministry I want to do. It wasn't something that I dreamed of doing ever. Ever. Okay, In our extended family, with, with my family, my wife's family, they knew we were the couple that were never going to have kids. We were the couple that just didn't like kids. And when we announced that we were pregnant, they were shocked to silence. They didn't even say congratulations. Nothing. Just like, you're kidding. That's all they said. That's literally all my father-in-law said. You're kidding. And that was it. That's the only thing said because they, they knew what was in our heart. But the heart needs to be conformed to God. And that requires repentance. I have to change my heart about these things. So now those that I once resented, now I embrace. And I love it. I want to serve others. I want to serve the least. I want to serve. Um, they are deserving. And we can sit here and say, well, I have this degree and that degree and this degree. I'm accomplishing this, this, and this. Um, you know what? Babies don't care. They only care if you know how to distribute Cheerios. That's the only thing they really care about. And if you'll get down on the floor and play with them. Talk with them. And so I went into the. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them everything I got. They're going to have story time. They're going to have singing time. They're going to have, I'm going to structure this whole thing because I want it to be the God's glory that I'm going to serve them, not by just sitting there and watching them play and doing my own thing, but because I'm invested in ministry to others. I'm here for them. In that occasion, I'm going to do my very best for them. That's normal service. What does lavish service look like? Normal, normal service to others, normal influence invites people to respond. It just invites you to respond. It's just very inviting. You know, you either accept or reject this, but it's an invitation level. And that's our normal ministry. And so you're not going to be out there and every time in your worship engaging people to come to a decision. Uh, usually it's influencing and it's more inviting. It's more of, of passive influence. But when it comes to lavish worship, which is what Mary does here, you can't miss the required response. You have to respond. The aroma of that oil filled the room and everyone knew what was going on. And now you have to come to a decision. You're either going to respond to lavish worship by either opposing it or accepting it you are either going to join in it and enjoy it as jesus did and exalt it for what it is as jesus did and made a statement wherever the gospel goes this lady's story of what she just did is going to be told it's going to be remembered from now on or you're going to be of the ilk of judas Who's going and the ilk of David's wife Michael, 
and you're going to oppose it. You're going to be critical of it. You're going to sit back and say, I don't think that's genuine thing. Well, we can find every way to be critical of lavish worship, can't we? And that exposes something about our heart. That our heart is not ready ourselves to enter into lavish worship. Michael and Judas are the two prime examples we have right here in our two texts that I'm trying to correlate. They have, they have resentment and they have their own interests in mind. She's like, I, you're my husband. How can you get down there and dress like a slave and dance around like that? And, and even these little girls are, are smiling at you. You see, she felt her pride was broken because, or was violated by her husband's activity. She was ashamed of her husband, the king. Judas was ashamed of what was going on. He didn't want to join in. And so instead of joining in it, he opposed it. He was critical of it. And we need to be careful in our evaluation of people's worship. And I'm not just talking about their singing and what they do while we're singing. I'm talking about their worship. When they need to enter into lavish worship because their heart is overwhelmed with thanksgiving and they have come to a place of great repentance and they want to demonstrate it with a, with a lavish gift that we do not question the gift, we do not question the reality of the humiliation, we do not question the validity of the thanksgiving, but we rather seek opportunity to join with them. It is their gift, it is their worship, it is their disgrace, it is that they're, they're willing to, to lay before the God, it is their thanksgiving that they're putting out, and we get to come along and ride with it. David was the one who was giving the lavish offerings. The people just followed along and, and rejoiced by singing and, and, and joining him in all of it. They were all filled with gladness. Now, did some of them have a hard week? Probably. Did some of them maybe have a, a, a family member die the week before? They were still in mourning? Probably. But lavish worship requires you to either join it or oppose it. Because worship of God trumps everything else going on in your life. Had a bad day? Encounter someone that's getting ready to enter into lavish worship? I don't know what can get you out of a bad day better than that. Remembering the mercy of God. Remembering the goodness and the power of God. And being, and being allowed to be swept up into someone else's lavish worship. None of these other people are responsible for that aroma penetrating the whole room. One person's lavish worship penetrated every single person at this banquet. And now they had to make a decision. Am I going to enjoy this and participate in it? Or am I going to become critical and nasty about it? And oh, that we would always have that spirit of willing to allow people to enter into lavish worship, even when I'm not in the quote-unquote mood for it. And mood change rapidly, don't they? You can change your mood like this. So choose to do it. 
And someone is, enters into lavish worship because God has blessed them because they have, have come through repentance and they want to honor God. And they want to speak it publicly. They want to they demonstrate it with costliness. They want to disgrace themselves and humiliation. Uh, we want to join with all of that and express thanksgiving with them for what God has done for them. Even if we get there and might not be thinking God's doing much for us, the fact is he has. He is merciful. The problem isn't that God hasn't done enough for us to express lavish worship, but that we have the wrong heart towards him. The problem with Judas is the same problem Michael had, and that it had nothing to do with the fact that he wasn't getting good stuff. The evidence is, is that when they sent out two by two, Judas was one of those people sent out two by two, and when they went into cities, uh, demons ran away and, and people were healed. Judas did that stuff. Judas got to hear all the teachings of Jesus. Judas was on that boat when the wind stopped and the waves stopped instantaneously. We talked about that yesterday. We had a storm here yesterday, and the lake here was really choppy, and it was windy, and it was kind of nasty cold, but now it's going to be 14 degrees warmer today. Um, we were down there at the lake, and I was talking to Scott. I was like, can you imagine not just the wind stopping, but the lake just going calm like that? Judas watched that. He was there for the feeding of the 5,000. He had experienced all the goodness of God. But he was a thief in his heart. Not just wanting to steal money. He wanted to steal glory. He didn't want Jesus honored. He wanted his place in a human kingdom. That was his motive. <coughs> Don't be that. But when you encounter lavish worshipers, they'll call you to decide. Am I going to join in this and enjoy it with gladness, or am I going to be a critical spirit? It's easy for us to be critical in our spirit towards it, isn't it? Because I don't worship that way normally. Neither might they. <laughs> Just because it's not normal doesn't mean that you can't enjoy it and join in it. There are times where we must do it. I gave an example last week of those times that I've been in, and, and it was disturbing to a bit. But then I had to look into my heart and say, no, these people are trying to express something. They're expressing a thanksgiving. They're expressing a, a desire to worship that, that I can join and not resist. Like, what is this going on here? This is what it's supposed to be like. No, because sometimes worship has to go beyond what it's supposed to be like because it has to be lavish. has to be because the extent of that person's desire to serve. And so when they do that, yes, it has an influence and, and a powerful one. It requires some kind of response. It will require you e either to oppose it or to join it. You can either enjoy it and participate in it with gladness of heart, or you can resist it and sit up in your balcony and look down on it with disdain, like Michael did to her husband, like Judas does to Mary. It wasn't just Judas, by the way. Um, the other text tells that it was several of the disciples kind of agree with Judas. That was kind of the view of many of them. They, they thought Judas had a stronger argument than anyone else. And it was Jesus that has to correct them. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week. But I just want to share with you that this is what true worship is. We take normal activity and we direct our attention to God that we should be worshiping with costliness, with humility, with thanksgiving, and with uh, esteem of others, a consideration of others. I'm not here just to have my own needs met. 
I'm not here just to please myself. I purpose not only in church, but in my home and in my society, in my community, is to serve others. And this is where real joy comes in. David understood that his purpose was to serve the people of the Lord, Israel. He was assigned a job by God. He wanted to do it the best he could. And for that day, it meant he had to dress like a slave and dance before the Lord, offering sacrifices every six paces. He expended extraordinary resources to serve God's people as their king. Not himself, no glory for himself. He debased himself. His wife's own words, you've debased yourself. Because I'll do it even more. So lavish worship needs to be allowed. It needs to happen in our lives. Is it every day? No. But occasionally we need lavish worship. When one person requires that, we need to all join with them. And this, is, this is fully what it means to, laugh, to, to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. That we can enter into that worship with them. That we'll lift up our hands, our holy hands, if we're righteous, we'll lift up our hands with them. That is, we'll join. We will take action to worship with them as they're worshiping. This is what God calls us to do. This is the worship that God is pleased with. Whether it's the day-to-day -day worship, the meal-to-meal -meal worship, the regular activity done with the right spirit and heart and desire, um, or the occasional lavish worship. It might only be a few times in your life. Maybe only a handful of times. Hopefully more often than that. Hopefully we're being repentant enough that we can lavishly worship God because we have experienced his mercy on a depth and a scale that we have in the past. Or have it in recent past. We need to exercise ourselves in lavish worship. We don't care who hears us. We don't care who else um, smells it. Who else sees it? Um, in, in David's day, they, they looked upon it. Um, in this instance, they smelled it. You could not miss the fragrance. Um, you could not. It was, it was done on a personal level, but it had a public presentation. They couldn't be missed. Whatever it's done, that we might join in that with all of our heart and soul. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you. For your love for us, we thank you for your word and for the opportunity to study it. Lord, we pray that our lives might be more worshipful in all that we do. That they might be more thankful. They might be more humble. They might esteem others more and more. That we might be willing to uh, put out any cost. That we might worship you better day by day. And that they might we might be serving others, esteeming others in all of our worship. Lord, that you might reinstill in us or perhaps instill in us for the first time a desire to lavishly worship you when required when we have opportunity in this and, and to do so and reason to do so that we might be willing to extend ourselves the Lord help us to be willing to pay that cost of worship anytime join in with others in their acts of worship. Lord, our worship so often is miserly. Forgive us of that. We know that's sin. And it prevents worship from happening at all in our lives. 
Lord, again, we pray that we might evaluate our own worship before we become critical of others. It might be honoring your sight. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.